Please turn with me in your Bibles, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to be talking this morning about a very common subject, temptation. I know that's something that none of us ever have to deal with, is it? Temptation. I had this scripture read up here, although we're not going to dive down into the Hebrews 4 passage. I wanted to put it up here, uh, right up front and center, because everything that we talk about this morning, everything that we address, needs to be addressed with this in mind, that Jesus, our high, pri- our high priest, has gone ahead of us. He's experienced everything that we could experience, and yet he did it without sin. He paid for our sins, putting them upon himself, imputed upon us his righteousness so that we could be found justified in God's eyes, and now we can have faith and confidence fully, no matter how we sin or fall, that Jesus has us in the palm of his hand. So don't forget that as we go through these passages that we're going to cover today, and there's going to be quite a few of them, although we're going to camp out in Luke chapter 4. If you go ahead and turn there, we're going to cover in a moment the temptation of Jesus as recorded in the Gospel of Luke. But do you ever wish that you were not tempted at all on certain things? Temptations just seem to come back and back and back, and we keep struggling with. You know, as Christians, we, of course, are not immune from temptation. Uh, there have been glaring examples who, uh, in, our, in our church history, recent church history even, of ministers who have fallen from grace, fallen from their pulpit, fallen from trusts, not fallen from the grace of God, but fallen from the trust of, of the body because of very open and public sin that they've committed. None of us are immune to that. And anytime we look at someone who sins, we need to, before judging, begin to process ourselves, unless it be for the grace of God, there might be I. The grace of God is what helps us through temptation and causes us to overcome. For me, um, my big temptation, I think now, there have, there have been a lot of temptations in my life, but it's in retirement. I'm retired. You know, we're there. We're finally there. I'm 65. Uh, my big temptation is to sit back and enjoy retirement just to sit back and and kind of enjoy things. You know, we've got our kids raised, goals through life. We've accomplished a lot of those. We've saved well. We've worked hard. Uh, And at times, you know, I've risked risked my life for our country, you know, in places that were very dangerous. So, you know, my my knee-jerk reaction is to sit back and say, you know, I've earned a rest. I've earned a rest. Where's that lake house on the boat with the boat, you know, that I wanted? I sometimes scratch my head, you know, Elaine wanted to retire in town so she could be around people. 
and integrate and, and engage with people. And my knee-jerk reaction was to go to the lake and, and get a boat and, and sit back and, and enjoy myself. Obviously, you can see the difference between those two knee-jerk reactions. Mine was completely wrong. Hers was completely right, which is why God has led us through that to where we are here now. And so I thank God that we are among a group of people that love the Lord and trust Him and walk with Him and are in a place that's thriving, that's growing, that has opportunities abound for us to reach others with the gospel. You know, the Holy Spirit reminds us constantly and has been reminding me regularly the last three years that we never retire from being a follower of Jesus. No matter how hard we work, no matter what we've accomplished, no matter what ministries we've been engaged in, we never retire, do we? We're called to run this race that we're in, as Paul uses that term, that athletic metaphor, the race to run it to the end, to leave this world still reflecting Christ's glory, to die on mission. I can't think of a better way to leave this world and meet our Maker than to die while on mission for the Lord. The thing I want to avoid most in my life is to become one of those bucket list retired Christians. And you know what I'm talking about. The folks who check the box, I want, I want to do that and do that and do that. There's nothing wrong, again, with, with going places and seeing things. I'm not saying that. But a life that's focused on doing all the things that you've just never been able to do before and experience yourself. I call that a bucket list Christian. You see it all the time. I see it in my peers on Facebook, you know, where they've done this or that, obtained the perfect retirement home in, in some paradise location and, and are enjoying the good life while the world around them is dying and is lost. And they as Christians are called to continue to run that race to the end. So what is that supposed to look like for us? That's one of my temptations as a retired person is to want to knee-jerk, go back to that. But God calls us forward, doesn't He? And my encouragement to anyone in here who is nearing retirement, never retire spiritually. Keep that focus on what it is that you can do, what the next chapter in this life God has assigned for you. What is your next assignment from Him in the life's purpose that He's given you? Acts 24 records Paul as saying, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given to me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Acts chapter 20, verse 24. So the older I get, also, the more I realize that running this race that we're called to run depends on my physical well-being, my physical well-being. The better I feel physically, frankly, the better I'm going to run. So I try to be good in that area. I try to exercise, and I fortunately have a helpmate in a lane that, that keeps me focused on, now, is that best for you? Is that going to be the best thing for your health? You know, it annoys me sometimes. I know if, you know, men, we're like this. We don't like to be told, you know, is that really what you want to do? Well, if it wasn't really what I want to do, I wouldn't have picked it up, you know. <laughs> but, but yes, we need that encouragement. We need that re reminding of things that aren't necessarily good for us. 
I try to eat healthy and in moderation. I watch my weight, although not as good as I should. Uh, some things I know that I need to avoid, like the ice cream aisle in Kroger, which is not that hard now that Bluebell is $9.50 a half gallon. So that's a deterrent, isn't it? But, you know, this is also my reason, and, and please, before I say this, don't take this as any form of condemnation. This is my conviction and mine alone, and it is of others as well, but this is the exact very reason that I have chosen in my personal life not to consume alcoholic beverages or use tobacco, is because it is not the best thing for me in my health. I have, in my past, a behavior of cigarette addiction. When I was a young man, I smoked cigarettes. There is in my larger extended family, not in our media family, but in our larger extended family, a history of addictions. So these things are dangers for me, and I need to be wise and stay away from them. And the way that I do that is just to avoid them completely. Again, there's nothing wrong with any of this in moderation. We have freedom in Christ, don't we? We have freedom in these things, as long as we're not sinning in them. But when they get in the way, they become in temptations to avoid. When they get in the way of our walk with Christ and the way of us being the best we can be as we run the race. Galatians chapter 5 uh, says that you, my brothers, will call to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. That's a warning to us, isn't it? As we, as we pursue our freedom in Christ, not to do that in a way that's going to indulge the sinful nature. Not to do that in a way that's going to offend other brothers in Christ. Not to do that in a way that's going to damage our witness for Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul writes, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. So again, these are things, the dietary issues that we're talking about, the, the food and the drink and all of this, they're just things. But they're also things that be, can become an obstacle for us if we don't handle them in the right spirit, with moderation and sobriety before God. I love Hebrews 12, chapter 1, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. The writer of Hebrews, possibly Paul, but we don't know, but the writer of Hebrews says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. I love that phrase, everything that hinders. This is the 1984 New International Version that translates it this way, but I think it's a correct rendering of the Greek, everything that hinders you in your walk with Christ. Throw it off. Cast it away. It's not about us. It's not about our freedom. It's about advancing the gospel and building Christ's church. So before we do anything, we should ask ourselves, is what we're doing beneficial in that area? Is it constructive in that area? And if it is, freedom prevails. And we can have a great conscience before God. 
But now focusing on the sin that entangles that's talked about in that verse, and of course the temptations that go along with bringing about that sin, which is the topic of this morning. You know, each of us, as I've said before, are not immune to temptation, and there is no temptation that's unique to you or me. Sometimes we think there is. Am I the only one in the world that's tempted in this way? Have you thought that? I think we all have things like that in our lives that we feel like we're the only ones. But I trust you, we're not. We're not. We have different degrees of different temptations. But it's important to realize before we go anywhere further on this is that temptation itself is not sin. It is not sin. In fact, of course, we know Jesus was tempted. He was tempted in the desert for 40 days by Satan. And then later, I'm sure, throughout his ministry as well. No doubt at the Garden of Gethsemane when he was wrestling with the cross, he was being tempted to abandon that cause right up to the end. But he stayed firm to it. Hebrews 4, again, we've just read this, but let's remember that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he was without sin. And it's through him and in his strength, and only through him and in his strength, as the Spirit empowers us that we can overcome temptation as we face it in our life. So in our case, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul writes, I like this one, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. You've heard this verse. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. I believe that. Do you? I believe that God will not let you be tempted beyond what He has given you the capacity to bear, to endure, to resist, to overcome in Christ's power. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. So when we're tempted, what do we need to be looking for? That way out. That way out that God promises us that He will give us. You know, in this life, we are engaged in a gigantic struggle against sin. That's what we are. We're not yet graduated to our resurrected state. So we still are captive to this sinful nature in a way. We're not slaves to it anymore. Christ now is Lord of our life and has freed us from the sin and death that we were destined to before. But we still struggle with it. Sometimes we scratch our heads and wonder, God, why did you allow us to continue to struggle with this? But I think in fact, I know that Scripture teaches us that through this process, we learn more about Him. We draw closer to Him and our need as we walk with Him through our trials and temptations. So with all this as a backdrop, what I'd like to do is examine two things this morning. First of all, we want to examine Jesus' example of overcoming temptation that we find in Luke chapter 4, which we're going to hit here in a second. And then I want to just briefly cover, if we have time, I'll be judging the time here, Satan's temptation strategy. I think that we wouldn't be doing this justice if we didn't talk a little bit about the strategies, the, the most common strategies that Satan tends to use when he tempts us so that we can be aware of the devil's schemes. So let's turn to Luke chapter 4. In verse 1, it writes, he writes, 
Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. So a few things to note here as Luke sets the stage for what happens next is that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. He was full of the Holy Spirit. He had been baptized. The Holy Spirit came upon him like a dove, and that voice from heaven came, and John heard it, Jesus heard it, perhaps others around him heard it, that this is my Son in whom I am well pleased, the affirmation of God to Jesus when the Holy Spirit came upon him. He is filled with the Holy Spirit as he goes out into the desert. And the Spirit, in fact, is what led him into the wilderness as you, as you, as you read that passage. The Spirit led him out into the wilderness for this period of trial. Tempted by the devil the entire time, there were three temptations that were noted. And these were the culmination of temptations that he had been experienced or that he had been experiencing throughout that 40 days. So when he went to the 40 days, he didn't just end it with the fast and then he has three temptations. He is tempted throughout this entire period. Satan is there. He's tempting him throughout. He had eaten nothing. He was hungry, starving, ready for a meal. And here we go into the next verse. The stage is set for, for verse 3, when the devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. So what does Jesus say? He answers him with the Word of God. He simply says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. He didn't pontificate on the efficacy of eating bread in a concept like in, in a context where he's in. He didn't explain all of the spiritual implications of why it might not be good for him to eat bread in this situation when he was trying to fast and focus on God. He simply quoted a short passage in the Word of God which stopped Satan in his tracks in that temptation. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. So was there anything wrong inherently with Jesus turning those stones to bread? Not really. <laughs> Obviously there's not. He had the power to do so. I'm convinced he had the power to do so if he, if he so chose. But his will was aligned with God's will, so it wasn't going to happen because it wasn't God's will. It wasn't yet God's time for Jesus to eat. Notice the phrase Satan is saying, if you are the Son of God, if you're the Son of God, do this and show me, show me, prove it to me. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? What did the folks say when Jesus was up on the cross? I think we have these phrases recorded. If you are the King of the Jews, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. And the Jews Pharisees and Sadducees looking at him said, let this Christ, this King of Israel, sarcastically saying, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Prove it to us. That is a satanic temptation. When he comes to you and wants you to prove something, to prove a point that boosts you up in some way that doesn't forward the kingdom of God. 
I call this temptation satisfying the flesh because it's not only the satisfaction of eating the bread, it's satisfying the flesh to go, okay, I'm justified. You know, I am who I am. See, look, see, here I am. That's satisfying to us, isn't it? Our flesh wants that. Our flesh deeply desires that. But to bow to this temptation for Jesus was to deviate from God's purpose, prioritizing the satisfaction of this flesh this desire in the moment, above the pursuit of God's higher purpose. It was a temptation to pride. You're the Son of God, show me. After all, you're God's Son. If anybody deserves to eat, it's you. You're special. The rules don't apply to you. Satisfy yourself now. Have you ever used your power, your influence, your connections, your position, whatever, whatever it might be, to get something for your personal satisfaction that you otherwise would have had to wait in line for it like everyone else? Have you ever done that? And by doing so, you miss the opportunity of learning what you learn when you have to wait in line with everyone else. For me, it was the diplomatic passport overseas. I loved that thing. You know, you know why I loved it? Because when I was overseas in these crowded airports, I'd flash that passport, and you know what happened? I got to go right to the front of the line. Got to go right to the front of the line, diplomatic only. Well, that made me feel good, made me feel real proud of myself. Oh, I'm somebody, I'm something. I get to skip the line because I'm, after all, a representative of the United States of America. But you know what happened when I got home that first time and tried to flash that diplomatic passport at Homeland Security in San Francisco? Uh, you go to the back of the line. <laughs> you, 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 that doesn't mean anything here. That's the kind of pride and temptation we're talking about here. The kind of, I want to use my connections to be first for, me, for myself, to spend it on me. This is a sin of satisfying the flesh. Jesus' ultimate satisfaction, we know, and we know this from multiple places in Scripture, none better than his time at the well with the Samaritan woman, you know, where the disciples are going off and buying food, and they come back and find him talking to this woman, and he says, I have food that you do not know about. Of course, they're scratching their heads and saying, did they have a McDonald's nearby that he went to and got some food and, and could eat here? But he had the spiritual food of doing the Father's will. That was Jesus' food. That was the thing that he focused on in his priority. So the lesson for us in this temptation is don't let your personal physical needs of life cause you to deviate from the greater purposes of God for your life. Let me say that again. Don't let your personal or your perceived physical needs of life cause you to deviate from the greater purposes of God for your life. The second temptation starts up in verse 5. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. And again, Jesus responds with one verse of the Word of God, it is written, 
Worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Now, were these dominions really Satan's to offer? You know, John chapter 12 tells us that this world is, uh, well, that he is the prince of this world, and certainly he has, he has dominion here, and he has kind of free reign almost at this point. But don't ever forget that God has never for one second abdicated his sovereignty over all things. God is in control. Anything that happens in this world, anything that happens to us, any temptation that we encounter, any trial or struggle that we go through must pass first through the sovereignty of God for it to happen. God is in control. So this is really a false promise by the devil, but you know that's not any surprise, is it? After all, he is a liar and the father of lies, according to John chapter 8, verse 44. Satan would like for us to think that he's in charge, that our cause is hopeless. There's just too much out there that's against us in this culture. How can we possibly prevail against a culture that's so against us in so many ways? He wants to discourage us, to create despair in us, to squash our hope. And what is the twin sister to hope? Faith. Destroy our faith. That's Satan's desire, is to destroy that faith that God has given us. It's a gift from God in the first place. He'd like for us to believe that the only way to get what we want in this life is through compromising our commitment to God in some way. The root problem of this, of course, is when we measure our success in life using the standards that this world provides us to measure our success in this life, we miss the purposes of God altogether, don't we? Very rarely do those two align. Very rarely. God will use things in this life and successes that you achieve to mold them for His purposes because He is, after all, sovereign and is moving all things according to His great will. But when we desire, when our desire is to, let's say, to get ahead, to be accepted by other folks, to be affirmed. We like that, don't we? To be affirmed, to be respected, to make our mark in this world. There's folks that really want to do that, make our mark in this world, make a difference. You've heard that. There's nothing wrong with that initial surge. There's nothing inherently wrong with that thought. To receive praise, love, and adorations for, another, for others. When, it is, when our desire may simply be to live a comfortable life. When these desires become stronger in us than our desire to love and worship God above all others, we demonstrate that we have not yielded control of our lives to the Lordship of Jesus. So I would challenge all of us today, and I look at this list, and I tell you, I fall in this, time, in this place several times, things that I struggle with things that, that I wrestle with, that I've wrestled with since I was a young man. And I'll, I'll give you what it is. It's to receive praise from other people. Adoration, I love the accolades of people, you know. Lord, teach me to hate the accolades of people and love you if those accolades of people draw me from you. None of these things are above our love for God or cannot be above our love for God. So 
to be willing to compromise our walk with the Lord to gain anything in this world at all is to worship another God, isn't it, besides the Lord? To worship another God. And so, thus, Jesus' response. Worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. So, this temptation would be named, co-named, gods in this life, other gods in this life, or success in life. I don't know how you want to phrase it, but, but that to me it falls into all of that category. But then the third temptation is we go into the last one, verse 9, we pick up with the devil, again leading him to Jerusalem, and had him stand at the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Now, Jesus is getting a little clever here, isn't he? He sees that Jesus has, has, uh, has responded to him already twice using the Word of God. So, Satan really tries to pull that little trick of his own. Well, let me just quote the Scripture myself. Of course, when Satan brings Scripture himself to us in any form or fashion, it has a twist, doesn't it? It's partial truth without the full truth, which means it's a lie. Beware of partial truth, always. There are innumerable, innumerable teachers out there who are perpetuating false teachings, making it sound like it's biblical, when in fact, it's coming from the very heart of hell. Beware. Jesus, though, answered. It says, the Word of God says, He's correcting Satan, yes, it says, He's correcting him, do not put the Lord your God to the test. I like the version in Matthew where he then says, be gone, <laughs> be gone, Satan, and he leaves him. Here we just are left with when Jesus had finished all this tempting, or when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left Jesus until an opportune time. Jesus is quoting uh, Deuteronomy 16.6 or 6.16 when he says, do not put the Lord your God to test. He's actually referring to a situation in the book of Exodus, where Moses has led the children of Israel out. They're complaining. They're griping. They've come through Egypt. They've come through Sinai. Uh, now they're in a hot place with no water, and they're complaining because they're afraid they're going to, to, to die of thirst. And they're bitterly complaining against Moses. In fact, Moses named this place Massah, Massah which means <laughs> testing. They're testing God. They're testing Moses. And so, the idea here was they weren't willing to wait on God. They wanted to control it themselves. They demanded that God bend His timing. Do you think God was going to let them thirst to death? No way. God's promise was being fulfilled through this people. He was not going to let them die of thirst. But they wanted it now. They wanted it on their terms. They complained against God, railed against Moses. They presumed against God, presumed against God. Let me pack, unpack that word a little bit, presumed. You've heard the word presumptuous. 
presumptuous, which really kind of means that I'm assuming there's a status that I have there to, to, to say something that I really don't have. What does the sin of presumption look like in us? Well, there's a false sense of entitlement that some of us tend to have a lot of times. A false sense of entitlement. I found this as an officer with the government supervising young officers coming right out of some of the top colleges in the country. I found that the younger folks and the younger generation tend to struggle with this concept more than the older folks who had learned to, to buckle down and pay their dues and do the work. There was a presumptuousness about this generation coming up that was coddled, that was pampered, that was, that, that, that was always told, you're a winner, you're going to be the next ambassador. Well, <laughs> I don't think so. You've got to pay your dues. You've got to do something extraordinary to earn that. I deserve it, though, they would say. I want it now. I want it on my terms. Presumptuous also can be a false sense of security, say, playing fast and loose with our freedom in Christ, sinning in ways, and just flagrantly saying, well, I could sin because God's going to forgive me. I'm covered, right? That's following a presumptuous attitude against God, presuming against God. Also, apathy and complacency, really, in our spiritual life are a presumption against God. And let me explain that. One might say, well, why do I need to focus on sharing the gospel when God's calling out His elect anyhow, with or without me, He is going to accomplish His purposes because He is sovereign? That's not for us to decide, is it? The fact is, God has called us to participate with Him in this mission, to spread the gospel and to reach a world for Christ, to communicate the gospel. How He saves them is His business. We know that He has known and elected people from the beginning of creation and before in His mind. We know this because Scripture tells us this, but at the same time, we have a role, a participative role to play in this. And for us to sit back and say, well, we don't really need to do it because God's got it, so I can kind of do my own thing, is a presumption against God Almighty. We forget sometimes that we are, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Christ's ambassadors. Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making His appeal through us for the loss to be reconciled to Him. Very quickly, there are just three strategies. I'm not going to parse out each one, but I want you to be aware of each one quickly that I believe that Satan uses when he tempts us. Number one, I think Satan loves to not be recognized. He loves for us not to even recognize that he's there. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about devils or Satan. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased, they meaning the devils, by both errors. So deny that he exists, to, to be incognito is Satan's, one of, one of his most preferred methods. He's working behind the scenes. The art of camouflage, disguising himself where he's not seen 
the, the art of subterfuge where he's masking himself in the midst of us with false teachers. He loves these, these settings where he is not readily and easily discovered. First Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. The second strategy, I think, is to catch you by surprise. He kind of, kind of likes to draw that from, I, I, I draw that from a military experience. Although I've not had a military experience, I've, I've hung around a lot of military guys, and I, I do know that the element of surprise is, is one of the military's greatest assets if they can do it. Intelligence reports, probing for weaknesses, assessing the strengths of your enemy, deception into trying to make the enemy think you're going to do something and you're doing something completely different, a surprise attack, hopefully in a place least expected or a blind spot. Do you have blind spots? I know I do. What is a blind spot? A blind spot is a flaw that is not really recognized very much by the one who possesses it. It represents a vulnerability in your life, particularly a serious, or potentially a serious vulnerability. Every one of us in this room have blind spots. Others see them, we often do not. And so why do, why do blind spots obviously make us vulnerable to Satan's temptation? It's because we don't see them. We don't recognize them. We don't acknowledge them until it's too late. We're already in the midst of the temptation that Satan is hitting us with. What we need to get through our blind spots is each other. We need fellowship with one another. We need accountability to one another. Getting through our blind spots requires transparency. It requires honesty. It requires us to be vulnerable to one another. It requires us to help each other be on guard so that we're not surprised when the enemy attacks us. And finally, Satan likes to hit us at our weakest point, at the point where we are the weakest. And you know what those are in your life. Watch out because the devil is out to hit you in that area. Pray for God's strength in that area of your life. Bring others into your life who pray for you in that area of weakness so that you can hold firm in the power of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit in the midst of that temptation. There's nothing better that a spouse can do for another spouse than to pray for that spouse because who knows our weaknesses better than anybody else in our life, our wife or our husband, because they live with us. The Bible likes to say it as this, don't, it warns us in this, this way, it says don't let the devil get a foothold. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul's writing this. Don't let the devil get a foothold. It's a stark warning because once the devil gets a foothold in your life, what does he do? He has a place from which to launch an invasion. Again, another military term. There's an old saying that, uh, that, that my grandparents used to say, and my dad then used to repeat it, and I learned that Elaine's parents used to say this, I believe, too. I know Elaine knows it. But it goes like this. It says, 
what one generation tolerates, the next generation accepts, and subsequent generations thereafter embrace. There's a great truth to that. There's a great truth to that, to make us aware that we should never tolerate things that are sinful in our lives. We need to be constantly about rooting out that sin and helping God communicate that to us, confessing to one another, helping each other overcome sin in our lives. Because once sin has a foothold, it can do great damage to a Christian life. Let me uh, conclude with this. Whatever form temptation may come to you in, whether it's satisfying the flesh, whether it's success in this life, whether it's presuming upon God for something, remember that Satan will try to get you and I to build our life, our family, our ministry, our church, our activities in this world, our career, our purpose, or any other aspect of our life and our existence upon a foundation other than the cross of Christ. Why? Because it's only at the cross of Christ where Satan is defeated and we are saved. That's what we're here about, isn't it? You and I have been called out sinners. There's nothing special about us in the human race other than the fact that we have been touched by the Lord God. He has imputed upon us the righteousness that's not our own. He's given us salvation through Christ that only comes through Him. Because Jesus took that rottenness that was sin, and that is still sin in our lives, and He has taken it, put it upon Himself, and died on the cross to pay for it so that we no longer owe God that penalty. Now, when God looks at us, He sees only the righteousness of Christ. That's what the gospel is about. And God opens His arms wide to those who do not know Christ. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 in the ambassador phrase, we beseech you, be reconciled to God. This is offered to you free. But the offer won't last forever. There is a time when he is returning. In tempting us, Satan would have us pursue service without suffering. He would have us pursue respect and honor without humility or deference to the Lord. He would have us pursue relationships without commitment. He would help us, he would, call, he would want us to pursue communication without honesty. He would tempt us to pursue life without pain. He would want us to have religion without Jesus, the only thing that can save. Again, remember, we as followers of Jesus are not immune to temptation. We are not impervious to a fall. Watch. Be careful. Our enemy, the devil, is prowling around 
waiting like a hungry lion. But we have the strength of Christ that we can lean on and stand on to overcome any and all temptation in our life. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the fact that you have died for our sins and we no longer have to be accountable to you for those sins because, Lord, frankly, we couldn't do anything to assuage you, to, to satisfy your wrath because you as a holy God detest sin, yet you love us so much that you gave us Christ and put our sin upon him to die in our place. So, Lord, we just sit back in awe and reverence and just pure satisfaction. The joy of Jesus is in us as we ponder this truth. So, Lord, help us as we go forward in this life to walk in the light as you are the light. Lord, help us to, to be the kind of witnesses to folks around us that we need to be. Help us to have a heart, your heart, for the people around us. And not just think about ourselves and our little circle and protecting our lives. Lord, give us your heart for the nations. We love you this morning. We praise you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.